Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it leads to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, I am so excited for today's episode, but before I introduce my guests, I want to tell you a quick little reason why, and I hate dating myself like this, but I'm gonna. In the early 1980s, in Dragon Magazine, there was an article about what it would be like to have combat in space and on the moon for the game Top Secret. I'm sure it had everything to do with the space suit scene from Moonraker at the time, but my God, as a kid, I thought that was totally fantastic. And over the years, from time to time, I think about, man, you know, with space combat, we often think space marines or, you know, Stargrave, science fiction gaming in that nature. But rarely do we talk about space adventures in the now or in the near future. And that's why I was so excited when Black Sight Studios announced their new game, Lunar. Now, we have two representatives from Black Sight today. Now, these are the guys who brought you uh, Don't Look Back and most recently Regime Rumble. Uh, just two incredibly creative, fun games. And now we have a third. These guys are easily becoming one of my up-and-coming game studios to talk about on the show. Guys, please welcome Connor and Ben. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, good to be here. How's it going? Oh, man, Lunar looks so good. As I said, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rare day when we see maybe a hard science fiction tabletop game. Usually it's the more fantasy elements. But what you guys have created is, is an alt-history, present-day-ish recent past but in an alternative history where there are different nations vying for the the resources on the moon how cool can you guys talk to us a little bit about where that idea came from because it is definitely something we have not seen on the tabletop uh yeah it's you know it's funny with a game set in space uh for lack of a better term we're trying to keep it really grounded um, so everything in Lunar, as you were saying, is, you know, it's like an alt history that starts, uh, I guess like late seventies is when technically you would be playing, but the alt history starts in the late sixties. Uh, the cosmonauts are the first to land on the moon. Um, and instead of that being the end of the space race, it kicks off the, uh, lunar race of developing settlements, mining for resources and staking out your claim. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, this, it's been a very collaborative project between Ben and I, but I think it did start with Ben. Um, Ben has always loved the sixties in particular. Um, and with that, the space race and NASA mm -hmm. and that sort of culture. Um, Ben, I don't know if you want to talk about, I guess maybe the very like beginning of lunar, how we started off with, cause I guess when, when we started, we we thought it'd be just like a couple of pages. 
<laughs> yeah, it was it was funny. I, I can't remember the exact moment. I think I messaged you or something, and I was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you did, like, a space skirmish game where it was, like, astronauts fighting off the moon? And and I was like, yeah, 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 like, in 2200, like, 20, 2250. Yeah, and, but... and automatically, you know, obviously, <laughs> mm-hmm. it being tabletop gaming, our minds immediately went to the more fantastical ideas and and you know there's there's a ton of great sci-fi content out there these days and obviously a lot of people have consumed things like the expanse and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and uh uh, you know i i think the crux of the idea came from funnily enough i just finished reading the book the martian and it was like there was something really real about it Mm -hmm. and i've always loved science fiction or futuristic films that are heavily grounded in reality and that always kind of appealed to me and then i think uh, at some point I, I i genuinely at this point can't remember exactly how this project started but i think one of us maybe it was me it was connor i, I don't remember we were like well what if it was like alt history and uh i i i've always loved the space race period in 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 kind of uh space history i think it's it's really fascinating and i think i think it's one of the biggest what if you know scenarios is that what if either the space race didn't end when it did or if the russians had beat the united states mm-hmm. to the moon and there's really very few things that you would need to change in history for that to have actually happened the soviets you know uh had a lot of uh i guess their technology was flawed in a lot of ways, but I think it wasn't. There was no stretch of imagination that they could have gotten to the moon. Exactly. Um, in the in the same time frame that the U.S. did, um, obviously. Well, it's it's kind of funny because <clears throat> while we were writing the backstory, um, I've always liked space, not nearly as much as been with the '60s in particular. I'm more of like a modern day uh, space fan, I guess you could say. Um, but when we were kind of like reading up on, okay, what is, you know, what are the alt history moments? What are we going to try to change to make this thing viable? Uh, and as I was reading through it, the Sergey, uh, oh man, I'm straight drawing Korolev. his name. But, I think Sergey Korolev was his name. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically the, 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 uh, designer of the Soviet N1 rocket, which was supposed to be their like Saturn five, um, ended up dying in like kind of a freak medical accident um like it was supposed to be like and it it's all his name was redacted because they were afraid the u.s would try to kill him apparently so like he was unnamed soviet engineer so you know what what actually happened who knows but after the fact it's come out supposedly that he died during like a routine surgery and so it really just came to uh what if he didn't die like what if the main rocket yeah. engineer didn't just like put a halt by dying and what was supposed to be a kind of typical thing and it turned out um after we started actually well after we started getting lunar and the alt history and everything down uh ben was like hey by the way the show for all mankind they just had that guy not die and i was like what yeah. <laughs> really like yeah they also essentially were like oh yes this was there was like you know one guy that potentially could have changed everything for the soviets in the space race um right and that was kind of the time period like everything kind of hinged on one or two people and like a whole country just pouring its resources into getting rockets into the air um and 
what's more fun than that, but just more of that. And that's kind of what Lunar turned into. Well, there's a third big nation that I know isn't mentioned or uh, sorry, isn't covered in the actual core game as it's coming out. But as we're starting to get stretch goals, uh, and we'll talk about the not Kickstarter you guys are doing to release right now in a sec, but there's a third big nation in Lunar, and that is the Chinese. Now, what's interesting there is, uh, and I know that we talk about Chinese a lot on this podcast, usually talking about nationalist Chinese forces in bolt action, is that in your alternate history, the communists didn't win. And so... The, the third nation vying in the space race is the Chinese, the nationalist Chinese, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I uh, think I, I'll be honest. So we've had a few people kind of query that because I think it's it was I think I'll, I'll be honest. I think some people read into that decision a lot more than what we had really planned. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just purely like again another point in history where something large changed but it could have easily gone the other way you know what mm-hmm. would happen if the communists had lost the the civil war in china and the republic of china was still around today you know what what would what kind of nation would they be like um and we sort of when we were looking at kind of setting up the alt history universe for this game Mm -hmm. we wanted to kind of uh play out a few other things that were happening on earth that maybe would set up some interesting narrative points or plot points that people could sort of utilize um the you know at least in in the sort of the background that i've written the the chinese is still the the communist chinese are still somewhat of a, a force in china but they they just didn't win the civil war, so they're still, you know, fighting their fighting their fight, I guess. Nice. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point, and like you said, we we weren't we weren't trying to put as much weight into it as it seems. Uh, there's there's been a specific couple of comments and things that were like, wow, that seems, you know, this is just like a tabletop game, right? Um, yeah, exactly, <laughs> but, right. Let's not um, get political, but, guys. We're playing yeah. with toy soldiers. <laughs> right, right. But it's kind of like, well, you know, what? how to change Russia? This guy doesn't die. How to change China? Uh, the communists lose. How to change America? Have Russia beat them? Like, like mm-hmm. all of the thing. you know, it's even one faction that I really want to, we have a long list of factions, but one that I think would be really fun to explore would be an Indian faction. Um, the right. problem is the first official Indian space organization wasn't made until august of 1969 um so to get to in alt history it's like okay we're gonna have to find some pivotal moment where their space program is like 10 years beforehand you know um and so that's it's kind of like a fun little puzzle but at least for the big three for uh russia the u.s and china there was some easier, I guess, moments it's, it turned out. Um, and maybe that's just because they were getting more press at the time. Uh, I don't know. But it's, yeah, and the ROC actually are in the book. The book comes with um, U.S., USSR, ROC, and uh, freelance-like factions, I guess you could say. Um, our ROC, our Chinese uh, taikonaut pack, we are, was set to be like the first expansion. Um, and then part of the the uh, black site backroom, the not Kickstarter you mentioned, was potentially getting those things out earlier 
um, you know, if people wanted to support it, we could get it into the hands faster than planning for it in three or four months. You know? Yeah. That's right. Now with, let's talk about that with the black side back room. I want to make sure I said that right until August 9th. If you buy this game through your usual website, it adds to the total just as if you went to buy it normally. Um, and then the game releases August 9th and it will be shipped then. So it's not like a Kickstarter where you're backing something. You're like, will it make it? Won't it make it? And then you have to wait 12 months. You actually have the supplies either in hand or you are currently manufacturing it on site. You have, you, uh, from what I understand of watching your videos, you've already had all the components from other places delivered. So you're actually ready to rock and roll. And it's just a matter of once people, and there's three levels to buy in, and you have the base game, then there's the base game with the add-ons, and depending on how much it sells, you get additional things, and then there's the all-in package, which gives you everything, um, yeah. including <laughs> including terrain and uh, mats and all of that to play. And so there's no downside to this. And, you know, August 9th is a very short period of time away. So um, it's not like you're going to have to wait forever. And then it's just coming to you. Um, can you guys talk to, am I representing this right? Yeah, I pretty, think that's yeah, pretty much pretty spot on. Um, I, I think the idea of the thing came from Ben and I have, we've tried very hard. Um, we started with a very small laser in a garage and made the money to buy the next laser, which made the money to buy the next lasers sort of thing. Um, we, uh we like being in control mm -hmm. and we don't like having being in other people's pockets <laughs> um we'd love to fa fund projects on a smaller level like we released regime rumble uh i won't say on a whim but it was kind of an impulse decision but we have the infrastructure in place to be able to do it where like we can put a few hundred copies of a game order the components and just say have at it um the kickstarter model we for very different reasons, Ben and I both, and some of the same, we disagree with it. Um, right now, it is like kind of industry accepted that Kickstarter is a marketing tool. Yeah. And to be completely frank, that blows my mind because at its core, I feel like Kickstarter should be a kickstart thing. Um, ben and I have said, and we've kind of teased recently, actually, that, you know, we'd love to expand our products to things that are much more intricate, things like uh, even multi-part plastic miniatures. Um, but that would be an entirely new line of products, entirely new machines, all sorts of stuff. And we could say, yeah, we could see something like a Kickstarter being useful for that. But a day-to-day, month-to-month product release, um, we really want to try to do it without that. We don't want to get caught in that cycle. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think in the industry today, and, and Connor and I speak about this a lot. This has been, uh, anyone that knows us, anyone that listens to our, watches our streams or, or hears us talk would have, will have heard of us mention these points before. Um, we have a lot of friends that use Kickstarter. A lot of our friends in the industry, mm -hmm. people that own other gaming companies, they use Kickstarter all the time and that's fine. It works for them. Um, but the way that our business is set up and the way it operates, um, Kickstarter just doesn't really fit 
with our planning and with our uh, production pipeline. We we're a fairly um, small run company, so we don't we don't make things in huge bulk. So we don't when we're ordering things, we don't order tens of thousands of, of, of components and things like that. Um, and we really like to to keep our production uh, pipeline and our product development pipeline like pretty lean and pretty fast moving. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not unusual for a product to work its way from my desk into manufacturing in a matter of days as opposed to weeks or months um and it's something that we really love we, we really like being able to get product into people's hands quickly um and just over time like the way that we've built our business up it's just not really it doesn't really jive with the kickstarter method of like you plan long term you put a lot of money into marketing you get people in and then you raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars you know um and you do that couple of times a year and that's kind of your business model um it's just not really how we kind of play the game um and so far we've, we've made it work for us you mm-hmm. know our business is growing and and i think i personally i mean this is going to kind of sound up myself but i personally think we're a good uh example of of a company that can you know produce consistent quality and consistent products without having to use crowdfunding um and it's something that I'm personally really proud of um, and something that we kind of want to uh, see how far we can take it, you know, yeah. and see, uh, see what the boundaries of that, of that are. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Well, if Don't Look Back is any indication, I bought the core box for that game. And, of course, it comes with all the characters. It has the, the wonderful slasher knife uh, movement template. It has all the tokens you need. and has those beautiful models to go with, plus the, the uh, MDF terrain that you just put together and you have the, the house from the slasher movie ready to go. It is incredible value. Uh, and... Just to, if you do Lunar anything like that, and I'm assuming it's going to be exactly the same way looking at the contents of the core box, it's going to be great. So let's talk a little bit about the core box itself. Um, it retails for $80, um, but if you buy it before release date, it is $70 US. Um, it includes the 64-page rulebook, which has seven core missions and the full campaign rules, which we'll talk about in a minute because they're cool. Um, there's a color token sheet, which is double-sided, we have 15 USSR and 15 USA unit cards, which line up with five multi-part uh, astronauts uh, from the US and five multi-part astronauts from the USSR. There's 36 core weapon and item cards, multiples of 25 unique weapons and item parts, um, so you can interchange things. You get some D6s. And you get the custom Lunar Hazard dice. And if you get in early, you get the Cosma Dog. Yes. (laughs) Um, And if you order it now, uh, it includes a free PDF of the core rulebook. So I know that sometimes people ask, well, can I just get the PDF rules? Well, if you get the core box, you get the PDF rules so you can work off an iPad if you want. Um, I know that a lot of people like doing that when they're playing. Now, that is an impressive core box. I, I think so. <laughs> we, we thought so. <laughs> we tried. Uh, we, we really, you know, you mentioned the Don't Look Back box. The, the original one came with MDF. Um, and we tried to kind of provide the 
everything you need in one box experience. Um, we, uh, I won't say learned our lesson, but including like 10 pounds of wood in a game box mm-hmm. did make it pr- prohibitive for shipping. Um, now we kind of alleviated that with the other tiers, as you kind of mentioned earlier, oh, yeah. there's terrain involved in this, but we kind of, uh, we, we like selling a complete product. Um, and you know, at its, at its core, you could play on a kitchen table with Coke cans representing terrain, That's you know? Right. Um, so we, we think we did that, but yeah, we, <laughs> I mentioned earlier, it started out as a couple pages and now it's turned into like a, uh, a bonafide box of stuff. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Well, let's, let's talk about the game itself because that's, I think why people are paying the price of admission on the podcast here. So if you're paying attention, there was five models from each faction in the core box. Now you might say only five, how many more do I need to buy? Well, if you're playing this game, you are using three to four minis per player per side as you go. So you're actually getting more than what you need with the core set. And in case you're wondering, I know a lot of people ask, how big are the boards for this? This is a two by two table that you're playing on. So it's very compressed. Um, so the few, the the fact that you're using fewer models really does sort of make the the action fast and furious because you're you're very close to one another. Uh, and then on top of that, the terrain itself is fairly basic. Um, now, if you're going to add lunar modules and landed spacecraft and moon buggies, now clearly that's going to spool out. But as you guys say in your stream, often you just need a nice uh, gray mat or a, a, a gray tablecloth and some gray rocks. Um, ta-da, the moon. Ben and I are big fans of fast and brutal games. Um, I really enjoy taking my time building miniatures. Um, and I enjoy painting a few, but not a billion. Um, so yeah, it's a small model count. Uh, it's very grounded in reality. So there's times where, you know, if someone takes a bullet to the wrong place, they, your astronaut would be exposed to the vacuum of space. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. Um, it's, that's where the brutal comes for, I guess. And, you know, the... The moon is, it is varied. There's a lot more hills and crags and cliffs than you may think. Uh, but yeah, it's basically just gray rocks. Um, and you can kind of play around with it like that. It does help to have things to break up line of sight. Uh, but the, the gameplay ends up being very fast. It's actually very resource driven. So um, you're, you're a part of this small crew. You're not like a giant, you could be a part of a giant corporation but it's three or four people. You're just out there to do a job or do your mission, um, pick up your resources, uh, get the credits at the end of the day sort of thing. And sometimes you get crossed with the, another crew and then you have to fight over those things. Sometimes you may not want to fight because it's too deadly. It's, mm-hmm. it ends up, you have to weigh your decisions quite a bit. Um, <laughs> ben and I just started actually we, uh, this past week, we set up our crews. We're going to be playing a campaign uh, through our stream, and I I don't know why. I like I know all the items, I know all the things, and I sat down and I was like, I do not know what to make the right choice because it feels like every little decision I'm making 
is like impacting the greater narrative so much, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and I like that because with three people, three units, you can give like backstories and, and mm-hmm. character to, and they can have an identity in their poses. Um, they, all the astronauts have interchangeable legs, torsos, and arms. Um, there's a ton of, uh, I think it's like 35 or 40 different like arm and mm-hmm. item things that you choose from to build them up on the, on the, just like the arm and weapon sprues. Um, but yeah, we, we've always liked the smaller scale stuff. Anytime I get more than like 10 people on a board and the board gets, even when it starts hitting four by four feet, I'm just like, this is a lot, this is a lot of space. And like, I had to paint a lot of things to get here. <laughs> I, I, I made Ben paint a lot of my people so that I could <laughs> play with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, nice. Yeah, it's, it, but it's nice. It's, um, it's, it, yeah, like you said, it's a small, fast, uh, brutal game uh, with small amounts. And that's just kind of the game that he and I prefer. Um, that's the game that we find we have time for at this point. So Exactly. Yeah. That's how a lot of us are at the moment. Time poor uh, and a little richer than we were when we were too young to afford to buy all the games. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. this slides in beautifully because, as you say, you only need to paint up a few models to be able to play, which is amazing. I don't know if I have it in me to paint an entire army of anything these days, uh, let alone... God, armies of anything to play whole big, you know, rank and flank I mean, type games. I have dreams of painting armies still. Right? Like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh man, I'd really like to just like do like a space marine army or something, you know? Like, and I think that's just like my nostalgia from mm-hmm. when I was younger. <laughs> you know, just like you've got a bit of disposable income and you're just blowing it all on, you know, Warhammer Fantasy and 40k miniatures, you know, but. I, I've always loved the skirmish games and, uh, you know, Mordheim and, and Necromunda and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think putting it on a two-by-two two is kind of just a conscious decision of ours of, like, just really forcing people's hand to, like, play through the game quickly, enjoy a quick game, you know, like Connor said, like, it's supposed to be fast-paced and brutal. Like, I, to, in my opinion, I think it's great. If someone plays through one game in 15, 20 minutes... That's great. I love that because it means either they can play through another game mm-hmm. or if they've got a finite amount of time, they're like, that's awesome. You know, like Connor and I used to play on our lunch break at our old job. We'd play some Necromunda and we kind of would like house rule a lot of stuff in order to just get through one game mm-hmm. on our 20, 30 minute lunch break, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think some of, some of our design decisions kind of came from, that where we kind of just wanted to encourage people to like be able to just play you know and not have to invest hours and hours and set up and all sorts of complex stuff you know exactly well when i when i worked for gw way back when um especially during christmas season we were so tired by the end of the day and we were working late um you often didn't have time to actually play the games. And when you work for games workshop you're kind of working for peanuts anyway. And so there was that moment of like why am I doing this? And so um, to sort of combat that, even though they often canceled lunch during Christmas season, uh, occasionally they would lessen that uh, because, you know, I was in the sales department and you have to make that money. But that's a whole other 
podcast episode right there. But um, <laughs> they would encourage us to uh, to play games at lunch, or they would set up little uh, game nights where they would kick us off the phone and say, "Okay, now go have fun, go do it. Right. Remember why you do this." But in order to do that, it's got to be a fast game. And oftentimes we would set up, play a couple turns and be like, okay, I kind of remember this is fun. Back to work. Yeah, back (laughs) to work. Right. But again, we'd have to modify. Well, we're not talking Games Workshop. We are talking Lunar. So let's talk about some of the resources that Connor mentioned earlier. In this game, oxygen is a thing. Because remember, we're not wearing giant power armored suits here. We are wearing what we would consider to be conventional modern day or slightly earlier uh, spacesuits, what you would see if you looked at an astronaut today. Now, Modern day and earlier, those are about the same thing. Right? I think that there's a report that came out recently about the suits on the ISS that have like been patched and repaired so many times that they're going to have to replace them because like, they sent those suits up years ago mm-hmm. and everyone just has to deal with it. Like suits haven't advanced that much in the past 60 years, unfortunately. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I, I often like when we're talking about space race in the class, I, I like to talk about how things haven't really progressed that much other than the computers that were on the actual ships, because yes. my phone right. has a more powerful computer than was used on the, yes. the lunar landers back in the day. Um, and the kids are just like, wait, what? And you're like, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's how it works. But oxygen in this game. Now, oxygen for a, on, a, on a player card, or sorry, on a unit card, oxygen is how you describe actions per activation for a model. Um, and it's also how you sort of do point values in this game when talking about numbers of astronauts, right? Correct, yep. yeah. So. Correct. Instead of, you know, having a, a quick and a long or a long and a long or three actions, um, we thematically and kind of narratively have wrapped all that up into oxygen. Um, so USSR and USA uh, all have four oxygen per unit. So they essentially get like four actions. Um, and it also conveniently kind of breaks it up in time intervals because it's like, oh, you have like four breaths to do something. And then it's like the next person's four breaths, you know? Uh, so it worked out a bit better than we anticipated, I think. And if we're talking about activations, I know that people often ask, um, mainly I think because this podcast originally talked a lot about bolt action. Um, and there, of course, you have the order dice. People often ask about uh, how interactions or activations work in this particular game. So in this game, at the start of every turn, you roll for initiative. And then the player that gets the initiative, they move one of their units or one of their models, and then the other person does, and it goes back and forth in a you-go-I-go method, but per model, not per entire force. So you're not going to alpha strike your opponent, uh, for example, which I know is something that a lot of people ask, particularly in skirmish games. Guys, is that a fairly representative explanation? Yeah, I would think so. Okay. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, except for the one caveat is uh, you can defer activation. Uh, you can force your opponent to go first uh, because it's a small number and because stuff can be really brutal. There is a um, there's a handful of situations where it's very important for you to go first, but it's also important for maybe uh, your opponent to burn a move to force them to move or do something so that 
they can either they're forced to be in range there's all, all sorts of factors that can go into it um but yeah there's in fact uh during a little demo couple rounds that we played on launch night there's a point where uh i had a guy that was standing over one of ben's units who was prone and i had a unit that was prone uh with one of ben's units standing over it and he got the activation and it kind of became this like, man, I really hope he stands up his guy and moves away so that he doesn't just outright kill my guy who's over on the right side. Like it, it ends up being pretty important who goes first or if you can force another one to go. Exactly. And so that is obviously um, that is one of those resources, uh, oxygen and how many activations that you have um, within those activations. But another one is, and this is fascinating, the, because, you know, activations and health and, you know, competency scores, these are all things that you see in other war games. But what makes Lunar truly original is you guys have a whole other section of resources, which is mass. And as people carry more things, their mass increases because on the moon, the weight is different and it handles differently. And that is a whole game mechanic in and of itself. I feel like that is going to require a little bit of explanation on how that one works. Can you guys unpack that for me? Uh, yeah. Uh, so at the start of Lunar, after we got through kind of the setting, uh, it very quickly became uh, Mass Simulator 2000, which is a terrible tabletop <laughs> game. It is. It is the worst game ever. Um, we had what was more akin to equations uh, than tabletop mechanics. And while maybe fun for some people, it was just like, man, like I don't, I don't need scratch paper to play a game. Like I no. hope I don't that way. Exactly. Right. Um, so we've, we've simplified it and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, asterisks on like mass is a technically ambiguous unit, um, but they do interact like you were saying. So, uh, and there's a little bit of uh, lore that goes into countries realizing sending uh, astronauts with like AK-47s into space was just a bad idea for both their health and the space station. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they, you know, they said, okay, well, we can't use stun guns either because you can't really like pierce a suit to, you know, shock a person. So it really came to just blunt force, just blunt force to subdue, um, which ends up being mass. Uh, so. There's a whole section of guns that have mass values. Again, it's somewhat arbitrary, uh, but they will hit your astronaut and potentially can knock them off their feet, can cause displacement. It's like a bunch of push mechanics, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, but like you're saying, if your astronaut has some resources, they have a gun with mass value three, a resource of four, they have a base unit mass of four, well, they're rocking eight mass. So that thing could hit them and they may not get knocked off because equal opposite force mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, so it's interesting because it, it ends up, you end up with two types of weaponry. And in the simplification, we also used to have piercing and blunt melee objects. You could baseball bat people like across the moon. Mm -hmm. um, can't quite do that yet, except now you kind of can. It's again, it was all equations and who wants to do math while playing a game? No, exactly. It's like you do the math beforehand to min max your stats, you know, not, mm -hmm. not during the game to solve an equation. <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so 
it really is just ranged weapons, but these weapons can push units into other units, can push mm -hmm. them into terrain. And while typically made for displacement, they can cause, you know, if you're knocked back, supposed to be knocked back six inches, but you only move one and then you hit a piece of terrain mm -hmm. or a large cliff face, uh, you that extra seven inches can be represented in damage. Um, you know, that force is still a thing. Uh, and it's it's kind of, there's like two very distinct play styles at that point. You can like try to run and gun, but piercing uh, traditional guns are pretty expensive, or you can deal with the mass. It also comes into play with grappling. And we actually just unlocked the vehicle rules today, uh, which is a whole a whole another conversation with mass but you know you, you you can mow down an astronaut and potentially knock them a good 20 30 feet back you know depending on your speed and how mm -hmm. much they're carrying stuff like that so it's this it's a nice other dynamic you're not just uh managing your oxygen and managing your positioning uh but you have to be aware that like if you're trying to wrestle somebody who is twice as mass heavy as you are mm -hmm. uh it could go south for you real fast, you know? And I've had games where, yeah, it does. Like, <laughs> the, the dice go against you, and then also the, you're trying to fight some totally stacked dude, and it's just like, yeah, this did not go my way. No, <laughs> you know, and things all. go bad really quick. And I think, you know, the it's, it's weird. Like, sometimes when we describe the mass aspect of the game, it sounds more complicated than it is, and I think when people look through the rules and kind of like wrap their head around how it works. It's, it's relatively simple, you know, and I, I think it's kind of, um, we sort of were conscious when we started writing the game that we didn't just want to like do a D six skirmish game on right. the moon, you know, and mm -hmm. be like, Oh, well guys can just jump an extra inch high. You know? Yeah. We were sort of like, let's just try and do something different, you know? And, uh, and I think it's our hope that people kind of enjoy that. And, uh, sort of have a bit of fun with it you know on on my notes it actually says underlined make sure that when you ask about mass that you also explain that this is still a fun fast furious game um, <laughs> because it's one of those yeah. things like sure i haven't played lunar but having watched the videos and having seen how the gameplay works it, it's a very smooth easy flowing game system the kind that we like on this podcast the kind that you could pick up quickly but then has the depth that there you have to make some decisions and you know, it's yeah. those decisions that lead to the tactics. This is exactly the kind of game that I love in that it's, it's short, sharp, you can pick it up, you can go with it, but there's right. depth to it. And when you start talking about, wait, you have to track oxygen and mass and then wait, there's competency roles. Wait, what? <laughs> it is actually a very smooth fluid system. So, yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's, um, and, and one of the reasons why we've tried to be very transparent with people about what type of game it is, is that we did do some non-standard game design stuff with this. And I think that, uh, again, it's our hope that people can, can enjoy that. And mm -hmm. if they like it, we'd love to do more with the Lunar system that we've written. Um, and I think that once people start playing through it, the atmosphere kind of comes through the game design. And I think, like, a, kind of going back to my previous point, like, rather than just do a D6 skirmish game on the moon, like, we wanted to give it a bit of depth. So, like, as you're playing through these games, you can have these, like, 
really fun, almost like narrative moments where it's like, you know, I shot this dude with a mass shotgun and he flew back and hit a lunar habitat and it like cracked, you know, cracked his suit open, you know? So it's kind of like, it's been really fun to kind of develop those, those mechanics and stuff as well. Yeah. And we, we have tried our hardest to cull down the dice rolls to an acceptable level. Every now and then there's maybe one more than we would like, but it's much better than the, uh, than the partial differential equations that we were dealing with at first, you know, <laughs> you don't have to take the community college course to play lunar. You're ready to go. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about another aspect to the game. And this is, um, fairly straightforward. And yet I think is a really nice touch. Uh, models in this game don't necessarily have higher or lower health values, you know, if they're Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh, a pleb in a suit, um, depending on who's wearing the suit, because in space it really doesn't matter as long as your suit holds up. And so in this game, suit integrity is how you track health. And with mass and suit integrity, as you as the game goes forward and as, you know, you pick things up, drop them, or take damage... Um, you have little trackers on the card that slide back and forth. In a way, it's a lot like the way Warlord does it in their um, Black Seas and Victory at Seas cards in that you're able to, at a glance, see where you are because you have these little sliders that attach to the slide of the card so you can clearly see what's going on. Um, again, suit integrity is how you do health and hit points. The, the factions are kind of based more upon their suit than anything else. Um, the USSR have suits that are a little bit tougher. They have a higher resilience, so they're harder to pierce. Um, but the suit integrity is the same across the board. And the game plays out to where, uh, you know, as you lose your suit integrity, as you get those health boxes uh, taken away, eventually it impacts your available oxygen because the oxygen is profusely leaking out of your suit. Um, in the same way, once you're out of health boxes, or suit integrity, you have a turn to be patched up as if someone could stop the leak and get you going before your uh, unit is removed from play. So it ended up being kind of a fun thematic thing because it's, I mean, yeah, it is violent, it is brutal, but it's not like it's gory. It's not like, oh, you got blown in half. It's like, yeah. oh, your visor has a major crack across the front of it. And like it just feels like at any moment it's going to burst and then you get mm -hmm. hit and you roll some damage die and they burst significantly. And it's like, yep, that's, that's done. You can't patch that. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> you can't patch a whole visor. And so it ended up turning into this nice thematic thing, the, the blend of oxygen mass suit integrity. Um, while you still can have the character in your units, which is really great in like a small scale skirmish environment, uh, there is this kind of idea of like, it doesn't matter how strong you are, how much you're willing to survive in this moment, you know, like you're in a vacuum on a, a ball hurtling through space that can range in hundreds of degrees of temperature mm -hmm. that is very unforgiving. Um, so like, yeah, it, it's been fun playing into that sort of idea. Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, what happens towards the end of the turn. We have the end phase and the recovery phase, both of which are very important to the game and do very different things. Ben, how do, they, how do those play into how Lunar plays on the tabletop each turn? 
So we, when we were kind of in the, uh, the development phase, those phases actually moved around probably the most because I'm trying to think like at what point we split them, um, split them up. But the end phase is essentially like where your crew sort of takes stock and you roll to see if you flee. Um, because the game is relatively resource driven in a sense that if you're playing through a campaign, you're kind of fighting over resource and mm -hmm. resource points and stuff. It was really important that for us to have a mechanic where um, if you've got the upper hand against your opponent, that you can force them to kind of like cut their losses and run. Um, and then the recovery phase is important because of the, um, the exerted tokens in the game, which is kind of another mechanic that you can uh, take an exerted token as like a temporary uh, gain, uh, but you have to roll to see if you can remove it. Uh, and you can do that in the recovery phase. And uh, I, I can't recall off the top of my head what the roll is. I'll have to... It's 50-50. Uh, it's 50-50. It's one, it's two, 50, three, 50. four, five, six. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, I would and, say and it's uh, quite... Go off of that a little bit. So the exerted token, you, you have your oxygen. Exerted token gives you an extra oxygen that round, but it's as if you're really hoofing it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you're out of breath, the recovery phase is, okay, is your guy catching his breath or is he kind of gassed? And that's like that 50-50 chance. Uh, so it's kind of like borrowing oxygen from yourself in the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of, you know, it's like yeah. taking some deep breaths, but you're depleting some of your reserves and you don't know if you're going to be able to calm yourself down. And, and then so I would say that's potentially, if I'm thinking now consciously, like that's a direct result of how I tend to play games a bit. Like I tend to be pretty like balls to the wall, like run in, fight, you know, like kind of like loose cannon style. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really like mechanics where it's like, big risk potentially big reward uh and then sometimes it doesn't always go in your favor and you you fail and all your guys die uh and that's kind of just part of playing the game but mm -hmm. and that's know, the moon I, that's the yeah moon. right so so i i will often take exerted tokens probably more than i should to be honest um but it's just fun because why not right yeah um so yeah it's it's we we both really like giving players plenty of choice to um to like figure out the round for themselves in sort of in sort of a way that like you could choose to exert a lot you could choose to play kind of careful you could choose to use the concentrate which is similar to exert but it's uh it allows you a re-roll of a, of a of a single roll so there's there's mechanics in place that tactically the game has a, quite a lot of depth to it um, and I think it, you know, it kind of helps with its playability. Um, but yeah, I think hopefully that sums it up. <laughs> I think it yeah, does. To, to the point, to the point where whenever I take exert tokens, I have to like double check that, and that's why I knew it was one, two, three, four, five, six, because, uh, I don't take them so often because it's just like not a mechanic I use because I don't like it to, mm -hmm. in my play style. Um, but <laughs> Ben uses it every chance he gets his, his guys are huffing and puffing i am the exact master <laughs> yeah. 
Well, guys, one of the integral parts of how Lunar works is the campaign system. Again, because the games are so short, sharp, fun, fast, furious, you can actually... It, this isn't a game that you're going to struggle to get a campaign going because, you know, sometimes with games that take longer, it can be harder to find the time. This is a game that's short, sharp. You can get in there. You can get your campaign going with a couple players. And for, you know, for an up-and-coming, fresh-off-the-ranks version one of a game, this has a pretty, in, you know, intense campaign system. Um, can one of you guys uh, talk to us a little bit about what happens between games of Lunar? I mean, there's things you can buy. There's there's sh resupply shuttles. There are other personalities. Like, there's all kinds of great stuff that happens. I I think first too, uh, while the campaign system is there, and we will say that Lunar is a campaign-based game, uh, Ben and I very much appreciate the one-offs. Part of that small-scale skirmish that we were talking about mm -hmm. uh, is the ability to have things like wounds persist across characters and have characters have some right. sort of story arc. Uh, but at the same time, when you're playing on a lunch break, we're not expecting you to keep your detailed post-game notes. Uh, exactly. So the one-offs are definitely there, and it's designed to throw some cards down, give them some weapons up to like 30 credits or something, and just have fun. Uh, but the campaign system and having your characters have that arc uh i think is where it, it shines the the resupply shuttles were actually ben's kind of uh pet project that i think turned it into one of the more unique aspects of them yeah so we we were trying to figure out an interesting way when it comes to kind of restocking and hiring new crew members and it didn't it didn't really make sense because this came quite late in the development process. It didn't really make much sense to us to just be like, oh, you just buy another guy, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you're on the moon and exactly everything is a finite resource. So we, we realized that when people are playing campaigns, if they have a few friends, you've got a little bit of downtime between, you know, maybe you'll, you'll miss a game, you'll, you'll play a bunch of different games uh, over a, a, a month or so. So what you can do is you can order resupply shuttles and there's a cost associated with them in credits uh, and they have a capacity and there's uh, five different shuttles in the book. Uh, all of them are based on real uh, shuttles that exist or were theoretical. Um, and that's essentially how you resupply your crew. There's... Uh, the ability to obviously get fresh crew members. Uh, and also it's the only way to obtain certain items and, and gear. So there's certain uh, weapons and items that are rare and that's the only way that you can obtain them in a campaign. And it just kind of prevents people from when they are starting their crew, they kind of have to start off fairly like lean and raw. Mm -hmm. They can't just like, oh, I have two guys, but one of them has the best gun in the game, you know? So <laughs> it's kind of a way for you to to work up and kind of like work in your narrative and kind of like get a few games in and and then, you know, maybe one of your resupply shuttles arrives. It's got a, a fresh new dude. You've got a little bit of a better gun, you know, and uh, you can kind of play on from there. And and I think it's uh, in a campaign, you, you may have a bunch of shuttles, you know, coming back and forward. 
uh, and obviously you need to kind of keep track of that, but I think that's kind of part of the fun of a campaign game. Um, and I think when we added that, the playtesters were kind of like, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, it's kind of original. Yeah, and some shuttles take, let's say, one game. So you order it, you play a game, and in the next post game, you'll get them. Some take two, uh, but they all have a trade-off. So the ones that take longer, you end up getting more for your buck. has a higher capacity for the same cost. You just have to wait for them. And it ends up kind of like making you plan ahead. Um, for instance, in this first campaign that we're going to be playing here, I immediately use my starting credits to order up a fourth man. Um, uh, but yeah. that means that during my very first mission, I have like a geology hammer, which is fine because Ben's people don't have that much, but they have like a couple improvised weapons and some things, which means I have to play very cautiously in this first mission until I get my fourth man and can start playing that way. Uh, so it ends up making you make some like minute long-term decisions at the same time as trying to manage your single mission that you're on and it's single objective. Yeah. Well, guys, if you want to find out more about Lunar, I highly recommend that you check out the Black Site Studios uh, YouTube channel. They have some great videos uh both detailing how to play the game and actual gameplay and just these wonderful human beings chatting about the game itself. Um, but if you want to read more, of course, you can go to Black Sight Studio, which is B-L-A-C-K-S-I-T-E studio.com. Uh, if you go to the Lunar tab, there is a whole slew of information that you need uh, to find out more about the game, to find out the different ways that you can buy it. Again, if you buy this game prior to August 9th, um, there are bonuses involved, um, so you can get extra swag. And there are bigger bundles, of course, that include things like terrain, moon buggies, uh, the, the gaming mats that you can play on, uh, all sorts of awesome add-ons. So guys, check it out. And as we said before, with um, Don't Look Back, Black Sight Studio may be the absolute best game for, or company for packaging their products. Don't Look Back's products, expansions come in old VHS boxes to represent the movies for the horror movies. For Lunar, it looks exactly like the, the, free, uh, the freeze-dried ice cream containers that you would get if you've ever been to the Smithsonian. Guys, I absolutely love your work. Please keep it up. And thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank Thanks for having us. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening today. Uh, this is Cast Ice. As always, if you have any questions or uh, if you'd like to talk about any of the games or the things that we've talked about on the podcast, please reach out via Facebook. Go to Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Uh, if you message the page, you are guaranteed a response from me. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, just remember that I do live in Australia and time differences are a thing. It may take me a couple of hours to get to you, but I guarantee a reply each and every time you send one. And thank you to everyone who's been messaging, hearing about Melbourne's lockdown. Yes, uh, we have been locked down for the last couple of weeks, uh, but uh, not to date this episode, uh, we should be coming out of it tomorrow. So whew, maybe we'll get some games in again soon. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you very much. And to quote our good buddy Casey, 
When you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Gone and that track by